I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SlyOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date. Whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SlyOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast at SlyOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers Local 139 and their partners at the Construction Business Group, and also our friends with the Madison Teamsters, Local 695. Joining us now, John Nichols from the Capital Times and the nation. All right, John. Uh, what am I? I'm hearing a noise, John. A clunking. Uh, <laughs> I just closed the door. Oh, well, that was it. All right. So be quiet when I talk to you. Not <laughs> screwing up the situation. All right. Uh, let's. Uh, the deal is done. The Senate has signed it. The president, as we record this on Friday morning, the president is going to address the country tonight. This is from ABC. Avoiding a catastrophic default. The bill is passed. The Senate passing President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt limit deal, sending it to the White House for Biden to sign. Of course, nobody got everything they wanted. There was give on both sides. But this agreement was a very good outcome. After more than three hours of debate. This is the last amendment of the evening. A bipartisan vote. 46 Democrats and 17 Republicans supported the bill. But it wasn't without resistance. The majority of Senate Republicans voting against it, some pushing for more defense spending. The people who negotiated this, I wouldn't let them buy me a car. While progressive Democrats opposed the deal because of the new work requirements for some older Americans on food assistance. This debt ceiling agreement will cut programs for some of the most vulnerable people in America. The two-year deal will also reduce the deficit by $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years, clawing back billions in COVID relief and IRS funding and ending Biden's freeze on student loan repayments in August. All right. Would you have voted with Lindsey Graham and Bernie Sanders or with Chuck Schumer and Tammy Baldwin? You want an honest answer? Well, now you're sounding distant again. Go ahead. You want an honest Yeah, answer? for some reason, John, you don't sound, you, you, you sound all distant. Here, let me try it. Yeah, there I'm you solid. go. There you go. We're going to get this Start done it. this morning. I know we are. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead. Okay. Do you want an honest answer? Yeah. All right. Um, if I thought that I had the space to cast a no vote, I would have cast a no vote because this is a terrible way to do this, and it's got a lot of bad stuff in it. Um, I would have obviously voted with the progressives to, you know, signal a objection to, you know, this mess of a thing. On the other hand, if I was the vote that was going to decide whether it passed or not, I would have voted to pass it. Okay. Let's see, I would have voted for it. I would have voted. Yeah. I would have voted for it. I'm probably more. I'm probably more. Uh, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm more of a hack than you are, but I would have voted for it. 
more fiscally conservative or whatever. Well, but, I, you know, and I, 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 I do like some deficit reduction, right. but I, uh, yeah. yeah, there is there is some bad stuff in here. But I do think at some point, even for progressives to acknowledge that Republicans are part of governing and that sometimes you have to compromise with people you don't like to make government work, I think is I actually think that's a message America needs to hear right now. Oh, and I think America's going to like it. In fact, there's some evidence that uh, Biden's poll numbers are, are bumping up right now. So, uh, you know, it's uh, we'll see over after a few days where exactly that ends up. But by and large, I think people are going to come out being pleased with, A, not having a crisis, uh, B, that, as you say, there's an element of deficit reduction here, and it is not the most egregious thing. One of the most interesting things about it, and one of the reasons why, you know, when you ask me would I vote for it, you know, if it was, if it was, you know, kind of on the nice edge and my vote would have actually passed it. One of the things I would have been comfortable with voting for it on is this. Joe Biden, uh, when he went into this process, he was, he drew some pretty strong lines and he was forced to come over a couple of them to negotiate, you know, to actually do something rare in Washington, which is negotiate. But he did so in a very smart way. So, for instance, while they put work requirements on people in their 50s who are, you know, uh, looking for food, which I think is a, an atrocious thing, and it doesn't actually help anything. Uh, it doesn't force anybody to get a job. It doesn't also do any good for society. While they did that, they also put in a lot of new uh, rules and new structures as regards the food programs. So there's actually a chance that the food programs will expand in many ways, Right. So while Biden was doing things that I think he himself didn't want to do, he was regularly at kind of every turn trying to mitigate against the damage. And, you know, boy, if I've got to have somebody negotiating a a bad deal or a tough deal on my side, I would want them to be that sophisticated in their approach. And I think people are going to see that. So, again, I come back to this point of if you want to see the point at which Joe Biden gets reelected, and you want to kind of trace back the lines on it, I think this is one of those spots where a lot of kind of very centrist, maybe even somewhat conservative folks will say, you know, I don't like him on everything. Maybe he's a little old, whatever. But he's kind of good at this governing stuff. Oh, well, and, and compare him to the previous three Democrats that have been in my adult lifetime where I, since I've been voting. You know, he is the most successful of the last three Democrats. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Oh, I don't think there's much doubt either. And I think he's had, you know, a pretty tough situation. Understand the dynamics that he's been up against. Uh, When Carter came in, Carter had, even though it was getting difficult, he had the rise of the new right, Carter had a pretty friendly Congress, you know, troubles with it, but essentially it was on his side. When Clinton came in, Clinton had Huge overwhelmingly, right? yeah, totally, and it was kind of old school. It was, you know, a lot of well entrenched, strong chairs, stuff like that. Um, so he was in very good shape there. Uh, unfortunately, he let him down on a lot of fronts. And then when Obama came in, remember, Obama had something close to historic, uh, you know, majorities. He was in very, very good shape, and they were actually expanding. Remember how. You know, in that late stages after the 2008 election, uh, you know, Minnesota came through and other states. So, you know, it, it was just a, a very strong situation. 
Biden never had that. Biden never had a wide majority in the Senate. You know, now, you know, it's, it, it, it's come a little bit. He's got one seat advantage, right? But it wasn't anything great. Um, and uh, he had some Democrats who were really resisting him in Mansion and Cinema. Uh, and then in the House, you know, obviously in the first two years he had a majority, but that majority was tiny. It was minuscule. They literally worried about whether somebody got sick, and if they did, they might, you know, not be able to, to do something on certain issues. And so Joe Biden, from the start of his presidency, has had to govern in the most complicated and demanding ways. And I don't know that people give him enough credit for that. Even, you know, his critics obviously don't. But I think even some of the people who are, you know, supportive of Biden, who will vote for him in 2024, don't recognize the sort of discipline that he has brought to this process. Well, he's and not a he's yeah. not a base candidate. No, but but he's also he kind of acknowledges that. You know what I mean? It's sort I think of, he uses it to his benefit. Uh, let me ask you this: How important was it that President Biden at the State of the Union laid down the predicate on Social Security and Medicare? Oh, it's look at the end of and the Medicaid. day. Yeah, at the end of the day, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are along with the quality of the economy. Remember, if the economy stays, you know, pretty solid. And by the way, as we speak this morning, we just got another great jobs report. So there's an awful lot of indications that, that things, even with the challenges, tend to be going the right way. Isn't direction. it great to see Jerry, Jamie Dimon wrong again? Jamie Dimon, by the way, thinking, he's thinking of running for president, by the way. Know. Oh, the, yeah. You know, that may Quite. be the one thing the country's united on. They do not want Absolutely. him to be president. <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's, Oops, you're just breaking up a little uh, bit there, John. Bernie Sanders, if Jamie Dimon runs for president, Bernie Sanders will have to get back in the game just to beat him. By the um, way, so the whole Sanders-Warren thing, in some ways that sort of helps the president as well. The, the president kind of played this all pretty well by playing that he did not take a victory lap after the House yeah. vote. Uh, he, he was a little coy with it. Absolutely. And you know what, what's going on here? This is something that, that circles back to FDR. If you remember, uh, you know, obviously you and I don't directly remember it from our history. If you remember, Franklin Roosevelt's great success um, is not told well in the current moment because people say, oh, well, Roosevelt, he was this kind of progressive president who was really, you know, staking out turf, you know, reforming government, doing all this big, bold stuff. In his time, while he was criticized, uh, from the right as a socialist or whatever, he was criticized from the left as being dramatically too cautious. In fact, there were a lot of people, including Wisconsin progressives, who thought that Roosevelt wasn't doing enough on a host of issues. And the interesting dynamic that Roosevelt developed was one where he would literally say to people who were objecting that he wasn't doing enough on a particular issue, go out and make me do it. And this is a famous line, supposedly, to A. Philip Randolph, uh, the great civil rights leader. And what he meant was, um, look, I'll go as left on issues as you make it possible for me to do, but I'm not just going to do it for the sake of doing it. You know, I'm not just going right. to you know, stake out a territory where I'm going to lose. And, and I think that that's exactly the dynamic that has been developed, especially with Bernie Sanders,
It's, by the way, one of the reasons why Sanders is so supportive of Biden. Even though Sanders yesterday, or as we speak, voted against uh, voted against the uh, you know debt ceiling agreement, right, um, and did so for I think some good reasons. The reality is that Sanders continues to support Biden because Sanders knows that you know there are times when Sanders will come with some issue, some proposal, some idea, and go out and really work on it, raising the minimum wage, something like that. And Biden will listen, right, and look for ways to make it happen. And that's a, it's a complicated dynamic. It's not always satisfying. I remind you that on this minimum wage fight, which Sanders is launching now, um, you know, we're way behind there, and it hasn't happened yet. Well, I, I was just thinking, if, to work. If, Ted Kennedy, yeah. if Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter had had the relationship Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden did, things might have turned out better. And, and you know, really, oh. that was on Carter and Kennedy. You're exactly right. Uh, so um, that that uh, I don't think we're going to be having a moment where the President Biden is uh, having to fight for his nomination. On the other hand, the Republicans, boy, it looks it looks to me like we're going to have a real Donnie Brook of a race in the Republican primary. Getting better every day, um, <laughs> and you know, Chris Christie's coming in. That's always fun. That's entertaining. Uh, it's always watch. It's always fun to watch that. I, I enjoy hearing all the jokes and how he's going to make a big splash. That's good. Oh, that's just <laughs> cruel. Um, no, but you know, I, I just tell you that that he's going to run. He's not going to win, but he's probably going to actually run against Trump, which is healthy because at this point in the Democratic or Republican field, you've got too many candidates who are kind of running, hoping that Trump stumbles, but they're not going to they're not going to directly oppose him. Right. And it's just ridiculous. Like some of them stepping up and arguing about who would be quicker to pardon Trump if they're elected president. Right. So that's just pathetic. Christie, on the other hand, is is staking out some some territory where he's basically saying Trump is unelectable and problematic on democracy and stuff like that. Like Asa Hutchison. Also, there's a couple of these guys who are actually saying some interesting things. Liz Cheney this morning is suggesting she might run more power to her, doesn't have a chance before that would be an interesting debate. Um, but here's where it gets really interesting, Sly, and this is a big deal. Ron DeSantis is turning desperate, and it is fascinating to watch, you know, as he becomes more and more unhinged, right? And so DeSantis is actually trying to run to the right of Trump Mm -hmm. on a host of issues. Mm -hmm. And, And he is saying things that, as Robert Reich pointed out the other day, sound a little more fascist than stuff Trump says. Well, and I, I, it, is, I, it is a common refrain that some people feel that he's more dangerous than Trump. Well, I, I'll tell you, the stuff he said in the last week would kind of lead you in that direction. He did a Fox and Friends interview the other day where he said the reason he's better than Trump, the reason people should choose him over Trump, is because if he gets elected, he will destroy the left, Right. And, I mean, he repeated it. He was very, very firm on this, and he said it in different ways on the campaign trail, that it is his goal to, if he is elected, use the power of government to destroy those who disagree with him. Now, that's a lot different than saying, as Ronald Reagan did, you know, if I get elected, I'm going you know, to win on the power of my ideas. I'm going to use 
yeah. you know, the bully pulpit to achieve a bunch of things. That is not right? a that is not a winning message in South Milwaukee, Oak Creek, Hales Corners, or Franklin. I don't think so. And first off, because guess, guess what? That's becoming the swing area of Wisconsin. Just go look at South Milwaukee County. Yeah, uh, that yeah. that is not going to fly there. Well, also because he's 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 pinning it on this opposition to woke ideology, right? Yeah, Trump says now, he hates the word woke. Now that's interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting, and and the problem is, you know, I mean, here's here's the challenge of it. If you look at polling, first and foremost, most Americans to this day don't even know what it means. Don't know what it means. They're not part of that debate. It doesn't come up in their day-to-day life. I've never, when I'm with my family around in rural Wisconsin, I've never heard anybody say, I'm really concerned about this woke ideology or woke, you know. So, number one, it's, it's kind of off the radar. Number two, when you describe a woke ideology in polling, people like it. <laughs> Right. Well, if they like they yeah, like some of it. Yeah. No, they don't like it. I, I understand, but you understand what it is. Yeah. No. 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 Thing is, if somebody wants to be called described in a certain way, you describe them in a certain way. If somebody wants to learn about certain things, you know, do you want to ban books? No, I don't want to ban books. You know what I mean? Well, the li- fact is, the right wing line is not working on this. Little did I think in 2023 it would be the political right going after Chick Fil A. And not the political <laughs> left. It's a pretty, we've gotten to a very interesting crossroad in America. We'll take a break. John Nichols from the Capital Times with us at SlyesOffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson. We love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Wachs have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at Madison Computer Works and also Jeff's Guitar Clinic. Uh, I I just want to touch on this briefly. Uh, A major event in the uh, investigation into former President Trump this week. Thomas with late reporting tonight. Tonight, Donald Trump hitting the campaign trail in Iowa, facing fresh questions about his handling of hundreds of classified documents. ABC News learning federal prosecutors have obtained a recording of the former president acknowledging he held on to a sensitive military document involving potential U.S. military action against Iran back when he was president and that he kept that document after leaving the White House. The audio was allegedly part of a conversation with aides who were helping former chief of staff Mark Meadows write a memoir. The meeting with Trump took place at his Bedminster Golf Club six months after he left office. Sources say in the recording, Trump suggested he knew the document laying out that possible scenario for an attack on Iran was highly sensitive. That audio, which has already been played before a grand jury, could undermine Trump's repeated claims that any documents he took from the White House were already declassified. 
which, of course, is a fairy tale. And here's some of the reaction to the situation Trump's in. Thomas with late reporting tonight. Oops. That's not the one I want here. Let's try. And let's try this. Thomas with late reporting ah, tonight. Hang on a second. Game over. This is a huge piece of evidence uh, for the special counsel. It eviscerates the two defenses that Trump has put forward. Those are out the door now because he's admitted that he understood there were restraints on what he could do with documents. This is evidentiary gold. It's just the last nail in a coffin that already has a whole lot of nails in it. This is game over. I think they have their foot on his neck. There is no way that he will not be charged. One of the people in that montage was Ty Cobb, his former attorney. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Now, it's bad when you're, the people you used to pay are saying, yeah, he's, he's, he's in trouble. So your thoughts on that? Well, it's huge. And, and you know, look, uh, Trump lies so often that I think a lot of his critics, and, and I'm certainly among them, you are as well, a lot of his critics just assume that everyone assumes he's always lying, Right. Um, and the problem with that is that that doesn't necessarily stand up in court, right? I mean, you do have to actually prove the dishonesty to show, you know, where the problem is. And this is pretty powerful stuff. It's also very interesting, uh, the context that it comes up in. Mark Meadows, who's one of his loyalists, one of the handful of loyalists, is writing a memoir, right, and says, oh, I, I you know, I, I want to follow up on this particular detail. And Trump's like, oh, yeah, I've got the paperwork on that. I, you know, I stole that from the White House. Um, and it's sort of, it's not just that he has it, right, and that maybe, you know, he mistakenly had it and either he retained it or maybe even you make a case that he retained it because he thought it might be of some importance or something he's, I don't know what that would be, but there's some legitimate argument. No, he's like, oh, yeah. Let me, uh, you know, go take a look over on the floor by my desk. I think I've got, you know, that, that document on that you can use in your memoir. Well, here's you're making money. Here, here's the thing. This, yeah, this guy monetizes everything, right? Yeah. Uh, he's a terrible businessman, but he does he does have a knack for finding a way to con people out of money. But right. as far as I, as soon as I saw that it was it had to do with an attack on Iran. I immediately thought of Jared Kushner. I thought of all the different Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I think of I think of all the different players that Trump has played, bad players that Trump has played footsie with. And uh, you know, by the way, this is not the Israel of 1994. So, uh, you know, you have to wonder whether this will go one step further. James Comey does not think that they're going to pull the trigger on Trump with the January 6th. They think he thinks it'll be too hard for them to prove criminal intent from Trump. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I think it's unlikely uh, that, you know, it, it's, unless they get a little more, um, you know, than what they've got, I think it's going to be hard. Look, I think that's one of the reasons why um, you've seen the Justice Department go so aggressively after a lot of these people, uh, you know, who were, you know, who've been convicted as regards involvement, you know, the Proud Boys and stuff like that. Uh, my gut is that they are actually trying to, you know, find somebody who, you know, similar to this tape that you've got, where there's somebody who says, yes, I spoke with Donald Trump. We had detailed conversations 
about this and that kind of prove that intent at a more profound level. Um, and again, that's, that's, you know, takes it beyond the situation where you and I might be talking about this and we're, you know, critical of Trump and we, you know, just assume people understand that he was actually trying to upend an election to, to you know, promote a, a violent insurrection against uh, the country. Uh, that, you know, we, we assume people know that, we assume people accept that. That's different than what you put in a court of law. And so I, I don't know that this is, you know, off the table, but what I would suggest to you is that, you know, we're getting very deep into the 2024 election cycle. We're essentially there. And so as a result, I think prosecutors are going to be looking for the cases where they can get a conviction and right. they know it, it's going to happen. The, the one thing that's interesting, and this kind of ties to Georgia as well, I'm sure Jack Smith is thinking that probably the best way to get Donald Trump on January 6th would be through the fake elector scheme. It's, it's a pretty powerful argument, and it does seem as if uh, there's been a lot of revisiting of that. You know what I mean? Is it, you, that... Have you noticed maybe in Algeria? Are you are you listening, Scott Fitzgerald? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there's quite a few of them. But but here's a question for you: Have you Tom, not t- Tom seen, Tiffany? <laughs> <laughs> haven't you seen a lot more reference to the fake electors in the last yes. few weeks? Yeah, it seems as if this this issue that was around and we were conscious of it, and you and I and some other folks might have talked about it over the last several years. Um, suddenly it's sort of popping up in the news in a lot of places and with a lot of interest. And so I do think that 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 is being pursued. Now, the question is, how close does that get to Trump? I mean, how much is Trump integrated into that? Again, it's going to be a question of whether people who are clearly in trouble on the issue, people who clearly, you know, did the wrong thing, if they feel that it is in their interest to testify honestly about, you know, conversations with Donald Trump. Um, that's where the thing starts to get, uh, you know, potentially a lot more interesting from a legal standpoint. All right. You just took a trip to western Kentucky and northern Mississippi. Let me just play a little clip of Brandon Presley, who's running for governor, against Tate Reeves. Small towns like this one are the beating heart of Mississippi little dots on the map just struggling to stay there. This is Nettleton. It's not a one-stoplight town. It's a no-stoplight town. Blink on your way through here and you can miss it. My parents brought me home to this house as a baby, and I still live here today. I'm Brandon Presley, and growing up here, we could see through the floor straight down to the dirt. My mama worked at the local garment factory before it shut down. Then she taught preschool at a church up the street. She was our rock and never let us feel as poor as we really were. My cousin grew up just down the road in Tupelo. You've probably heard of him. All right. What are are your reflections on that that trip? Well, we should tell people who the cousin is. Oh, that would be Elvis Presley. That's right. Brandon Presley, cousin of Elvis Presley. He kind of downplayed that, though. He did not overplay that hand. Well, you got to be a little careful with it, right? I mean, it's, it's such a... It's such a talker, right? As soon as you bring it in, pretty much everything else goes to the side, at least for a moment. Um, but here's the deal with Brandon Presley. He is, uh, he needs to be understood in context. He's running in a state where Democrats have been wiped out 
at the statewide level. Um, they had an attorney general until four years ago. That attorney general ran for governor. He lost, not by a lot, only yeah. by about 4 or 5%, but mm-hmm. he did lose. And so they got no statewide elected officials. Um, that's a tough place to be in, right? It's a tough place to build from. They don't even have a Doug LaFollette. Um, and so uh, you're trying to rebuild the party. He does so from probably the strongest point, I would argue, of any Mississippi gubernatorial candidate in, in, on the Democratic side in recent decades. He is an elected official. He's a public service commissioner for the northern part of Mississippi, but it means he's, he's won votes in a substantial portion of the state. He's built multiracial, uh, multiethnic coalitions. Uh, he's popular um, in you know many parts of the state. He's got the endorsement of Benny Thompson, uh, the member of Congress who's uh, you know often been very at odds with the Mississippi Democratic Party because he thought it was a little too conservative. Um, he is running as a populist, an economic populist. He's pretty conservative on social issues. That's something that needs to be understood. But his economic populism, particularly his calls for expanding Medicaid, uh, for saving rural hospitals, uh, and for just you know doing some smart economic stuff, I think is resonating. Polls show he's running about even, uh, sometimes even a little ahead. And his biggest advantage is always, you know, this is one of the subtleties. When you're talking about southern states, uh, where the Democratic Party has had a hard time. The Republican governor uh, is a mess. He's an ethical mess. Many people think he's a crook. Um, he's very unpopular with his own party. And he likes and, so, and he likes to play tennis, and he wears a sweater around his neck. Oh, he's a, you know, he's like a, he's, he's, he is a Mississippi one percenter. He's know? not, he's just, not a man's man. Okay. I'm just going to, uh, not a man of the people. I would like to, I go more. Oh, oh, let, oh, no, no, no. Presley gets a little meaner in that little intro video. Little oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's like, this guy's not macho. Okay. Yeah. He's throwing a punch. And, and he does and a little, Presley does a little emasculating of Tate Reeves in that. He may do that. And I have to tell you, when I was down there and I, I was speaking to people, um, uh, including some Democrats who've been you know, kind of had a hard time for a long time, right? As the NAACP down in Lafayette County and a candidates for county commissioner and stuff like that in some place, swing areas. And, and what they said was, look, it's precisely sort of what they've needed. They've needed somebody at the statewide level who's ready to really go for it, right, who, who is campaigning not as a manager, but as somebody who wants, he's got sort of a vision to, to take Mississippi in a different and better direction. Somebody said to me, and this is a, a pretty connected guy politically down in Oxford, Mississippi, said that Brandon Presley reminded him of the old school Mississippi populace, or southern populace, but without the bigotry, right? And of course, race always having been the the most horrific dividing issue in the South, and the one where the Democratic Party was historically very much on the wrong side. Um, and you had populists in the South, even people like George Wallace, but they were racists, right? And the question is, can you do a Southern populism, right, that is against the utility companies, for the working people, um, but that, that isn't racist, that explicitly seeks to build a black-white coalition? And that's what Presley's trying to do, um, there's some evidence that it's working pretty good. And key to that is, you know, you don't just put a good vision out for yourself. You also make it clear that the other guy, the Republican in this case, is not somebody you want as your governor. Um, and he's got one more, he's got one more hurdle, uh, because the last Democratic governor, 
of Mississippi, Ronnie Musgrove, had to win before the legislature when it was still controlled by Democrats because he didn't clear enough right. representatives district. They've got an old trick in there, you know, in their oh, laws. Yeah. So you can't just run up the numbers in the Mississippi Delta and the city of Jackson. You have to win in some other places or, win all over. or it goes yeah. before the legislature. You got to win all over, right? And uh, and that's what uh, that's what Brandon Press is doing. Uh, when I was down there, he was in the midst of a. I think they have eighty nine counties in in Mississippi, more than Wisconsin, and he was in a, uh, a kind of late spring, early summer process of going to every single county and not doing a you know like a not doing the way sometimes politicians do. Yeah, I visited every county in the state, i.e. You know, I stopped at the quick trip on my way through, right? This is going to every county for events, uh, often in very small towns, and where he spends a lot of time talking. And the interesting thing is that when he goes to those places, he's clearly trying to communicate with them, to try and win them over. Uh, Many are already on his side. But uh, it's very fascinating to listen to him because he is very well-versed in the Bible. And... To hear him speak is a fascinating thing because he will he will frequently make references uh, to biblical stories, to parables, to you know psalms, and to you know prophecies. Um, he's very comfortable with his religion, and if you know rural Mississippi in the black community and the white community, that is that is a a, a valuable way of communicating. That is a way that, that gets through to people, and so uh, we will see how far he gets. I would still say it's an uphill race. But I went down to cover it because I'm very interested in this question of, you know, how does the Democratic Party survive in the South? Does it? And, and is it a presence? That's a big deal for this country, Sly, because if we allow, you know, one of the most rapidly growing parts of the country in the southern U.S. is, is you know, especially in states like Georgia and Florida and that, experiencing a lot of growth. If you allow a region to kind of be off your radar, right, and, and you don't, you don't try to bring it into the mix. Um, it, you know, it politically it, it tips the balance, right, in ways that that can be very challenging for the country. On the other hand, if you try to compete there, even if it's hard, and even if it requires you to, you know, have candidates who, frankly, bring a diversity of views to the party that it isn't, you know, the Democratic Party, you know, uh, becomes a broader tent, so to speak. Um, I think that's that that is one of the ways, maybe where we get out of the mess that we're in. Well, Harry Truman always said that both parties should have a diversity of, diversity of views in them. And if you, you go back to 1976 and how many states were competitive in the presidential race oh. and close, yeah. uh, it, I, think that was a, I think that was a better time. Well, I mean, look, it, the, you're getting to a point that is a very, very important one here. I mean, even Bill Clinton, who you know, I'm not the biggest fan of, um, Bill Clinton in that 92 race, he sought to compete in, um, you know, Arkansas, of course, Louisiana, Kentucky, Texas. He didn't win Texas, but he, he tried really hard there. I mean, you understand that it isn't that long ago that we had Democratic candidates really trying to do, you know, something close to a 50-state strategy. Remember that Barack Obama, um, you know, made an effort to carry North Dakota, right, and, and actually got a very, very good percentage there. And, and so 
it, this is an ancient history. The Democratic Party, you know, tried to to you know reach out and do a lot more states. And why did that matter? Let me sum it up in the in the simplest way. In 2000, when Al Gore won the popular vote but lost the presidency because of the intervention of the Supreme Court, you know, he had that very close result in um, the state of, of Florida. But interestingly enough, in the state of New Hampshire. If Gore had won New Hampshire that year, he wouldn't have needed Florida. So sometimes these small states that you don't put a lot of energy into come back to haunt you. And that's why I think, that's why I've always argued that a 50-state strategy is not your, not just is it a good idea, you know, for all sorts of, you know, intellectual reasons. It's a practically good idea. Sean Nichols from the Capital Times, thanks for coming to SliceOffice.com. Pleasure to be with you, brother. SliceOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.